and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. And this is the last episode of our Earth mini-season. If this is the first episode of Flash Forward that you've ever listened to, here's the deal. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, I take you to a new future. Some of them are possible, some of them, not so much. First, we take a little field trip to tomorrow to see or hear what's going on. And then we teleport back to today to hear from real experts about how that future that we just saw might actually go down. Got it? Great. Thanks to PNAS Science Sessions for supporting Flash Forward. Today, take five minutes and learn something new about the physical, social, and natural worlds from the frontiers of science. Subscribe to Science Sessions on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Okay, let's go to the future. Today, we are starting in the year 2062. Everybody thinks they're on the verge of the next million dollar idea, but do they have what it takes to really make it big? It's time to find out. Real entrepreneurs, real investors, real success. But don't expect anything warm and fuzzy. Welcome to the snow globe. Let's meet the bears. Lenny Haywood is a renegade entrepreneur and billionaire who not only owns the Seattle Supersonics, he also plays for them. Doesn't matter if the glass is half empty or half full. All that matters is that you are the one pouring the water. John Jacob Siwa is a fashion icon turned fashion mogul who doesn't just walk the runway, he owns it, literally. I'm not a tough guy. I'm just delivering the truth and only the truth. And if you can't deal with it, you can't deal with my money either. Farah Mustarian is the daughter of Iranian immigrants who went on to become a technology mogul like the world has never seen, selling her first startup for $4 billion at the age of 15 and never slowing down. I love dreamers. Dreams are great. But without a business plan, a dream can turn into a nightmare. My advice is always, follow the green, not the dream. And Juana Aguilar, a venture capitalist who has taken hundreds of businesses under her wing to form the world's largest and most profitable corporation conglomerate worth nearly $1 trillion. Everybody thinks they have great ideas. Your dumb cousin thinks he invented the best mousetrap in the world. And maybe he has. The question is whether he can make that idea into something real. Bears will hear from the world's best, brightest, and savviest inventors. For some, it'll be heartbreaking. Are you kidding me? She's trying to rip you off. Can you give me a second to think, please? Oh my God, we're all gonna die. For others, it'll turn into the opportunity of a lifetime. These are nice. This is the future of building, ladies and gentlemen. Who wants to dive in? The water's empty. We're gonna make some money before society collapses, girls. Let's step into the globe. The ocean is dead, and it's time to move on. I know it sounds harsh, but hear me out. Just like you, I grew up loving those stories about whales and dolphins, hearing about how the oceans used to be teeming with life. But for the past 15 years, countless countries and agencies have tried to revive ocean habitats, and they've had no success. It's time to reclaim the oceans on our terms and take advantage of the vast amount of space they provide. I'm Christina Amity, and I'm the founder of Shora, a set of network products for the future of open ocean agriculture. The open ocean is an immense, basically untapped region ripe for agricultural development. 
And right now, there are hundreds of companies looking to spin up farms in that open water, harvesting everything from kelp to oysters to more traditional fish like tuna or sardines. And what every single one of those companies is going to need is autonomous equipment to maintain those farms. And that is what Shora offers. I've invented a line of products that make Shora a one-stop shop for every new ocean farm, from cameras to keep track of your growth in fish, to autonomous cleaning devices for nets, to sensors that monitor growth and nutrient levels. We've got products that work for almost any size application, from a small family ocean farm to the biggest kelp setup you could possibly imagine. And our revenue stream is diverse, too. Customers purchase these highly engineered devices once, but they also license the software to use them from us on an annual basis. We're constantly approving the software, so this is a really great situation for the customers because they're constantly getting better working equipment. So what what are we looking at here? This is live footage from a pilot project off the coast of Maine. So this is coming from a network of these cameras. And you've sold the system to people. I've already got contracts with several land-based farming operations looking to diversify and move into the open ocean space. This is about to be a huge business opportunity. Who wants to dive in? The water's empty. I'm interested in the software licensing side. So you're basically replicating the John Deere model here. Yes, exactly. And did you develop the software yourself? I did, yes. Excellent. Do you have patents on these? I have a patent on the drone and the cleaner device, not the camera. So my grandfather was a fisherman. It's tough work. It's messy, it's hard, and it doesn't make a lot of money. Well, it didn't then because the fishermen, like your grandfather, had to go out and find the fish. These systems are more like farms than like what your grandfather did. Plus, the business model here doesn't rely on the price of fish or kelp. I'm selling technology, not food. So we're seeing fish in that pen, right? On this camera? Haddock, yes. And I guess you don't have to worry about sharks eating this stuff anymore because... Because there aren't any sharks anymore. Exactly. The most dangerous thing that can happen to these farms is a biofilm outbreak or a jellyfish bloom. And I've got techniques for monitoring and stopping those kinds of things. So what happens if the big animals do come back, though? I don't think that's likely. You think the oceans are just done for from an environmental perspective? I do. I mean, look, I'm not happy about it, but at some point, you have to admit defeat and see what the silver linings are. I think this is the silver lining here. The United Nations estimates that 915 million people are underfed every year. We're running out of agricultural land. We need to find new ways to generate food for people to eat. And I think this is part of the solution. So what's the legal structure in the ocean? You don't own the water like you own your land, right? That's right. The open ocean is governed by the law of the sea. So what does that mean for these farms? So far, nothing. Most of the farms we see right now are built in exclusive economic zones within a coastal country's domain. Plus, farms within an EEZ don't have to comply with state regulations. So you can avoid some of the annoying farm laws that various states might have. Okay, great. Less regulation is always good. But that means that you can only really sell to countries and markets with coastline. Yeah, but that's still a huge market. How huge? If you do a bit of back-of-the-envelope calculations, looking at places that have a port nearby to distribute the food and all that, there are currently 89,468 square kilometers that could be used for ocean farming with zero legal problems. Then what? Let's say you exhaust that market. Is the open ocean really accessible for these businesses? It's hard to say. There's a seabed authority that regulates how seabed mining is operated, but there's really not much regulating farming in the open ocean. Do you think those regulations will come? 
Probably. The UN loves to regulate stuff. But again, I'm selling technology, not food. I don't have to worry about how those farms are regulated. And regardless of what they can and can't do, they'll need my technology. Uh, not if they're regulated out of existence, they won't. True, but I don't think that's likely. The world needs food and the oceans are barren. We have to use that space. It would be stupid not to. And how much do these cost? Each camera is $450. The cleaning robot is $5,000. And the autonomous patrol drones are $6,000. Most big operations will need more than one of each. And the software license? Depends on the scale of the operation. But it ranges from $50 a month to $2,000 a month for the big farms with complex networks. And the processing required for these autonomous drones, where's that happening? Onshore? Does that get impacted by storms? We actually have a network of CubeSats dedicated just for shore processing. A huge storm could probably impact performance, but you'd have other problems too at that point. Okay, what are you asking for here? $750,000 for 20%. I'll do it. Oh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't just accept the first deal you hear. I'll give you a million for 20%. Come on. I know software licensing. I know tech. <laughs> I know tech. <laughs> this is going to get ugly. I'll match her million. Would you two be willing to combine your deals? No. No. <laughs> Trust me, you do not want them to try to work together. Christina, listen to me. I have the connections to make this work for you. You need to cut the price of those drones down for this to be viable. I have a company that manufactures those parts. Your business here is software, not hardware. No, you're wrong. The key here is political connections. You need to be able to keep the UN from getting in your way here. Farah doesn't know anybody at the UN. I do. Oh, come on. What are you offering? To bribe UN officials for her on national television? No, I'm just saying that I know people. You don't need bribery. You need to refine your business model. Can I take a second to think? Don't take too long. Okay, Farah, let's do it. Ha! Excellent. Come on. Christina, we're going to take over the ocean. Okay, so today we are headed to the ocean. And more specifically, we're considering the future of the stuff we take out of the ocean. If you think about the Earth as a whole, about 70% of it is ocean. This is Amanda Nixon, the director for international fisheries at the Pew Charitable Trusts. So we tend to think of ourselves as, you know, a terrestrial planet with a whole lot of water that has some useful stuff in it. But in fact, we are really an ocean planet. And humans have been dipping into the ocean for food and resources for tens of thousands of years. The earliest fishhook archaeologists have ever found comes from East Timor, an island nation near Australia, and dates back to 42,000 years ago. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations estimates that 170 million tons of fish and seafood were produced in 2016. That number encompasses freshwater fish, saltwater fish, crustaceans, mollusks, and other aquatic animals. And that number, that 70 million tons, that includes animals that were caught from the wild as well as animals that were farmed. And the breakdown between those two categories is about half and half. 90 million tons were caught and 80 million tons were farmed. We're going to come back to the farming side a little bit later in the show, but first... Let's talk about seafood that's caught in the wild. There are about 2 billion people on the planet who are dependent on fishery resources for either income or food or well-being. So when we look at that and then consider state of fisheries, things get a little bit worrying. 
you might have heard, probably, that ocean fish are not doing so hot, especially the ones that we eat for food. And in order to understand why, we have to actually go back to the late 19th century. It started, in my view, when we deployed the first fossil fuel-driven trawlers, steam-driven trawlers around the UK. This is Daniel Pauly, a professor of fisheries at the University of British Columbia and the head of a program called Sea Around Us. Danielle is also the author of a new book called Vanishing Fish, Shifting Baselines and the Future of Global Fisheries. And he says that when these powerful steamships came onto the scene in the UK, they kicked off basically a fishing gold rush. These were much more powerful than a sail, sailboat that were used up to then, and uh, about 10 to 100 times more powerful, ton for ton. And uh, they made a short thrift of uh, the stocks of fish that were around the British Isles. From there, fishing technologies got more and more sophisticated. When World War II ended, a lot of the technologies that were developed during the war were adopted by fishing fleets. Steam was replaced by diesel. Sonars were invented to fight submarine, and but to find school or, or fish. There's been massive advances in technology, um, things like radar and refrigeration, and all of that has made it possible to fish vast areas of the ocean very, very efficiently and effectively. By the 1960s and 1970s, humans had gotten really, really good at catching fish. Like, probably too good. Basically, it was a matter of fishing a stock to exhaustion and then moving on. There was no real, no sustainability, no, no attempt to rebuild the stocks that were left behind, but a, a steady outward expansion. While these fish stocks were hurting, demand for fish was skyrocketing. So fisheries managers worked hard to come up with new methods of fishing. I was participating in the 70s in, in an attempt, a successful attempt, to introduce trawling in Indonesia. And so the, the catch continued to increase for a while. And when they started running out of fish that people would buy, they would try to introduce new fish onto the market by rebranding them. You can catch absolutely horrid fish that you could never sell whole, uh, but you can cut the head off. For example, a monkfish sounds good, but if you saw them, they are absolutely revolting. The same for the slime head sold as orange roughy. The, this is called a slime head. Uh, you can see how, how well it would go. The, in, every, in every country, fish are, are renamed to, to, acquire, uh, to acquire a good name. In Germany, smoked shark is called the locks of Schiller. You know Schiller is a German poet who has had blonde locks. And sharks, uh, shark steaks, are called veal of the sea in France. So, you know that fake crab stuff that you get in, like, California rolls? It's sometimes called surimi. And, okay, if you want to keep eating the stuff, you might want to skip this part, because Danielle is about to tell you how it's made. It's a bottom of the barrel that you're scraping. Because if you, if you have fish that you cut the fillet off, there is flesh between those bones, right? And uh, with high-pressure hose, you can wash this flesh off and concentrate it and put it in a barrel and press it and you get surimi, this fake crab. It's actually leftovers, it's residues. So throughout the 20th century, fishermen are coming up with new fish to sell, new ways to package fish, they're going further out into the ocean, and they're scraping further down in the ocean, all the way to the bottom sometimes. It was basically a fishing free-for-all. 
people really thought the ocean was inexhaustible. There wasn't too much concern about expanding fishing effort because there was a sense that you, it, it was fundamentally impossible to overfish the ocean. And so, you know, you don't really need any rules or a whole lot of um, concern about how fishing occurs. Well, it turns out it is not impossible to overfish the ocean. And that has led to a situation where about a third of fish stocks globally are overfished and 60 percent of them are fished to the point where you really can't take any more out before you're in the overfished category. So fished to the actual brink of sustainability. Right now, everything from sea bass to salmon to cod to halibut to the lesser known orange roughy are all in precarious positions due to overfishing. Pacific bluefin's even in a worse situation. It is down 96% from its historic level um, and are considered vulnerable to extinction at this stage. The sort of frustrating thing here is that the solution to this problem seems pretty simple. This is a really fixable problem because all you have to do is not take too much fish out. Fisheries are their single biggest renewable protein resource on the planet. And all we have to do is not take too much out. So why has it proven so hard to just take less? It turns out that there are a couple of reasons. The first is that for a while, it was hard to convince people that taking too much was the problem. In the 1950s, for example, when the sardine fishery in California collapsed from all of the fishing, people blamed the environment. The same thing happened in the the 70s when the Peruvian anchovy, which at the time was the biggest fishery in the world, and it collapsed as well, and it was all blame on El Nino. In other places, people blame seals or whales for eating all the fish. And in fact, there's a really interesting story there that we don't have time for right now about corruption, whaling, and why some whale counting studies are actually funded by people who are pushing the idea that whales have to be killed and harvested because they're a danger to fish stocks. For more on that, check out the special patron bonus episode this week. Go to patreon.com slash flashforwardpod and sign up at a $5 or more level. Okay, plug over. Today, it is really well accepted that it is not El Nino or seals that are threatening the fish in the ocean. It's us. But even with that knowledge, it can be hard to fix the problem. Scientists can say, hey, here is how much is a sustainable amount to take out of this fishery. But when the quotas are set by governments, that is not always the number they use. Even countries like the U.S., which we would consider to be a reasonably responsible fishing manager, is actually overrunning their quota of an endangered fish population operating internationally. The laws and treaties that apply to fishing were all written at a time when people didn't really think you could overfish. And the decision makers, the ones who actually set these quotas, they're often politicians who are in power for just a couple of years. I think the reason that quotas get set higher than the scientific advice is because if you have an existing short-term economic gain that you want to meet, you're going to try and meet that need. And then there's all the illegal stuff. We also know that because of the lack of effective rules and policies and enforcement, um, about one in five fish is caught illegally, which means that the removal of those fish, again, puts additional pressure on populations. The World Wildlife Foundation estimates that more than 85 percent of global fish stocks are at a significant risk of illegal and unreported fishing. Experts estimate that there are currently three times the number of fishing vessels active out on the ocean 
than would be required to generate the amount of catch that is currently being reported. So something doesn't add up there, right? And it's hard to regulate some of this because of the 70% of the Earth that's ocean... About 50% of that is high seas. So that's about 50% of the Earth that is high seas, which is areas outside of national jurisdiction where you have really fairly limited control over what actually happens. And if nothing changes, if we don't change the way we're handling fisheries right now, it could basically be the end of fish. I think the the clear answer to that is that we know that stocks will decline and we know that there will be a series of collapses of critical fisheries over time. That could be a later rather than sooner situation. I wouldn't want to speculate on the amount of time that would take. But it's fundamentally a case of if you continue to overfish these stocks, they will end up in an overfish state, then they will decline severely, and then you end up with um, a situation like Pacific bluefin tuna at less than 4% of its historic level. And at that point, it's not providing the, the food or the income or anything that a healthy stock would provide. And it's much, much harder to recover. And so what we're looking at, if we don't vastly improve fisheries management, is a, is a situation where you have many, many more um, stock declines and collapses. And without fish, we'd lose the animals that rely on them. Dolphins, whales, seabirds, bears. Then, without all those predators, all of the stuff that lives in the ocean would go unchecked. Some experts think that jellyfish could completely take over and turn the sea into a jelly paradise, thick with their squishy, stingy bodies. And, I don't know, maybe in that future we'd figure out how to eat them. Jellyfish, 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 jellyfish. We'd also probably see more toxic blooms of marine algae, which can lead to dead zones. Dead zones are areas with no oxygen, and such zones, completely deoxygenated, kill everything that lives there. And uh, dead zones are likely, are, are spreading, and uh, you can imagine our vast areas, coastal areas and, and so on, being oxygen-free. And uh, then nothing lives except a few bacteria. Without fish, the ocean turns into a salty nightmare, basically. And remember, billions of people today rely on the ocean for food and jobs and money. Daniel often refers to fisheries right now as a big Ponzi scheme, where we keep moving from one fish stock to the next while continuing to promise higher and higher returns of food. And like all Ponzi schemes, this one does eventually have to come to an end. You can get really fast into despair, but really that's the end. That's when the Ponzi scheme comes to an end. And the big one with Madoff, it was billions of dollars that people had lost. In, in the case of this Ponzi scheme that we're playing with the Earth, it might be our civilization. Well, this episode got real dark real fast, didn't it? Normally I save the we're all gonna die bits for the very end, but here we are at, what, like 25, 20, 20 minutes in? And we are already there. Whew, okay, so the good news is that we can actually do something about this. One of the most promising solutions to emerge in the last five to ten years is a newer management approach that's called a harvest strategy. Sometimes it's called a management procedure. Not very exciting names, but very <laughs> exciting approaches. Okay, I hope you're sitting down because this strategy is going to blow your mind. It entails everybody getting together, 
agreeing on how much fish to take out based on the science, and then actually taking out that much fish. I know. Incredible, right? We like to say it's it's akin to deciding the rules of the game before you go and play it. And so once that's decided, you take away an annual quota system because it's basically a case of the science came in. We already agreed that if the science said X, we would do Y. And then the quota comes out the other side. And now we all go and do whatever we're allowed and empowered to do at that point in time. I'm poking fun at this since it sounds really simple, but it's not how fisheries have been managed in the past. So making this very obvious, seemingly no-brainer change could actually make a huge difference. If you combine that with better accounting of fishing and cracking down on illegal takes, that could actually keep us from the nightmare scenario of toxic, dead oceans. Given how terrible that future I just laid out is, you might be wondering if there's anything you should be doing. Should you stop eating fish? Should you avoid certain fish? I know that I personally often feel totally overwhelmed by the information out there about what to buy and eat, especially when it comes to seafood. I have, on more than one occasion, stood for like a half an hour at the fish counter googling like farm-raised salmon versus line-caught sustainability and trying to quickly read the results to figure out what to buy. So I asked Daniel about this, and here's the thing. In general, what you or I do, it kind of doesn't matter. There is too much uh, attention devoted to private people, to personal consumption, and not enough to, to reach out to government. This issue is kind of like climate change. What you and I decide to do, whether we use a plastic straw or not, or buy the sustainable fish or not, that stuff is good, of course, and you should absolutely do it if you want to. But individual decisions probably will not save fisheries any more than individual decisions will stop climate change. The change has to come from these big companies and governments. But there is one type of seafood consumption that Danielle was willing to tell me not to do. When you see ads on on TV, uh, some companies offering shrimp as much as you eat, eat as much as you can, uh, no limit kind of shrimp. All you can eat. All you can eat, uh, that's the word. Uh, (laughs) It's completely disgusting. Wild-caught shrimp is gathered by scraping the bottom of the ocean. And it has one of the highest levels of bycatch, catching stuff that you don't want, and generally throwing it away, of any seafood out there. For one kilo of shrimp, you throw away nine kilo of perfectly edible fish. And you have in your head the fact that in many countries which have shrimp fisheries, the the kids don't have enough to eat and don't have protein uh, to eat. It's actually revolting. All together. You don't go to Red Lobster very often. <laughs> no, I don't go to Red Lobster <laughs> be- because there is another thing. They employ divers for diving for uh, lobsters that have uh, no diving equipment. And uh, lots of people get paralyzed. And uh, this happens in Central America on, on a big basis. This is Red Lobster. Ah, forget about Red Lobster. So there are a few futures here, right? The terrifying one where we destroy all of our fish and wind up with a toxic dead ocean. The happy one where we get our act together, stop taking so much fish and let their numbers recover and we can keep on feeding people with wild caught fish. But there's also a third option where we add another element into the mix and that's mariculture, farming seafood in the ocean. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what that entails, how it works, why some people think it's the future of seafood, and why other people think it's a terrible idea. But first, a quick word from one of our sponsors. 
This podcast is sponsored in part by PNAS Science Sessions. Science Sessions are short, five-minute conversations with brilliant scientific minds. In less time than it takes to drink a cup of coffee, you can explore new worlds, discover big ideas, and learn something new. The most recent episode of Science Sessions tackles a really interesting question. So you are probably familiar with Stonehenge, that big set of stones in England that nobody can really explain. It turns out Stonehenge is just one of a bunch of big prehistoric stone structures like that in Europe called megaliths. And for a long time, scientists have wondered whether the impetus to build these strange stone structures started in one place and spread out from there, or whether this idea originated in lots of different places independently. It turns out this is a really hard question to answer, since remember, this is prehistory. There are not written records. To find out how archaeologists are trying to figure this out and what they suspect the answer is, Subscribe to Science Sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so, the Earth is mostly ocean, and so far, that ocean is mostly unused by humans. But what if we could farm the oceans? What if we could turn all that ocean space into an agricultural zone? It turns out that aquaculture is the fastest-growing source of animal protein in the world. Since the 1970s, most of the seafood that Americans eat was not caught in the wild, but instead raised on a farm. As a whole, the aquaculture industry was valued at $13 billion annually in 2012. But it's important for us to break down the different parts of aquaculture here, because talking about aquaculture as a whole makes about as much sense as talking about agriculture as a whole. It's a huge field. So aquaculture encompasses everything from growing algae in ponds, all the way to growing big fish like tuna in pens in the open ocean. There's freshwater aquaculture where people grow things like tilapia, shrimp, and eels. Then there's mariculture, which is saltwater aquaculture. Within mariculture, there are even more distinctions. Some people are growing filter feeders like mussels. Other people are growing plants like kelp. And some people are growing big, expensive fish like tuna. Some mariculture happens in bays and just offshore. But the mariculture that we are going to talk about today, and some people think is the future of fish, is open ocean mariculture, farms that are not right next to the coastline. The shellfish farm is about a mile off the coast of Santa Barbara, and it's in 80 feet of water, and it's an open ocean farm. It's about uh, 72 acres uh, in total. This is Bernard Friedman, an offshore mussel farmer. And mussels are a great candidate for this kind of offshore farming because they're filter feeders. We don't do anything besides provide a nice suitable habitat for them to grow on. And uh, they just feed in the ocean currents. And about a year later, I can harvest them and sell them. Bernard gets his baby mussels from a hatchery in Oregon. And he basically places them on these ropes and then hangs the ropes out at sea. And we plant those ropes on the farm. And, uh, and then about three months later, they're about, I'd say, an eighth of an inch large. And uh, we spread them out onto more and more rope. And uh, we just let them grow further. Bernard's operation is relatively small. It's just him, no employees. And just like on land, running a small farm is really tough. My best year was about five years ago. I grew 160,000 pounds of mussels and I haven't been able to duplicate that yet. This year was a bad it's been a bad year because there we didn't have any upwelling and so there's no food in the water 
and the muscles aren't feeding well. And so this year I've been getting killed uh, on the competition. My muscles just aren't um, plump enough to compete with other people's muscles. And, uh, and I need to sell these muscles in order to make room for the next crop. Plus, mariculture is still a relatively new field. It's not like growing food on land, where certain strains of cattle or chicken or corn have been around for a long time and have been bred and domesticated. What I am doing is, is basically growing in a wild environment, and I'm basically growing a wild species. The species hasn't been domesticated, and nor has the area that I'm growing in sort of been domesticated. So it's all very, uh, very wild and untamed. And Bernard is also in a little bit of a unique position, trying to do this in the United States, where getting the right permits is really tricky. There is no system. So th there, there is no government entity that's promoting what I do. Most of what the emphasis is, is on conservation of the resources, not exploiting of the resources. Right now, Bernard is in the process of trying to sort out all of the different permits he needs for this. And the list of permits is extensive. NOAA, the state of California, the Coastal Commission, the Coast Guard, the list goes on and on and on. And in fact, this is a daunting enough list that many mariculture businesses don't even bother with trying in the United States. And the United States has been very hesitant to establish a, a rigorous framework for offshore uh, aquaculture. This is Tyler Sklodnik, a senior scientist at Sea. There's pretty much zero examples of major aquaculture farms in U.S. federal waters. And that's because the process of obtaining a permit um, is possible, but it's very uncertain. Innovacy, the company Tyler works for, doesn't do mussels and clams. They build mariculture systems for what are called fin fish. The farm in Panama grows a fish called cobia, which is an excellent fish, tastes delicious, great biology for aquaculture, not a lot of name recognition. The farm in Mexico farms two species. The one is a local species which is endemic to the Sea of Cortez. It's called totoaba. And they also grow red snapper, which is a much more popular species. A lot of our farms call a group of fish called cereola. And this includes uh, yellowtail kingfish, almaco jack, and that group of species. And that's a very popular fish. It's often better known for its Japanese name in sushi markets, and that's kampachi. And what Anova Sea sells are basically fish pens that can survive out in the open ocean. So most mariculture happens in bays and close to shore. That's for a couple of reasons. First, if you're close to shore, it's easy to get your boats out so you can get your employees and all of your stuff to and from the farm. Second, bays tend to be protected from big storm surges and waves that might hit in the open ocean. But Sea thinks that the future of mariculture is out, past those bays. A big reason to move offshore is that aquaculture has expanded so much that we're running out of, aver of uh, available sites. Plus, going further out into the ocean allows them to avoid some of the sustainability problems that mariculture faces in a bay. And also in deeper water, the sunlight less sunlight hits the seafloor. So it makes it much easier to find a site that is just empty sandy bottom and we're not impacting the local wildlife at all. But going out into the open ocean, it has its challenges too. Now it's not always a slam dunk. It's often a much rougher environment, stronger currents, 
larger waves, and a longer commute time from your home base where you would operate and store your vessels and store your fish feed and all of that. And here is where Anovacy's products come in. Normally, fish pens are basically just like a plastic ring, like a hula hoop that floats on the surface, connected to a net that has weights at the bottom. And the fish sort of swim around in that net. Anovacy makes two different pens with two different designs. One is called the Sea Station, and the other is called the Aquapod. So our main product is called the Sea Station, and it's often been described as a flying saucer underwater. So the technical name for the shape is a double frustrum, and it's a two pyramids, each with two sides, sort of on top of each other. And the central column, there's a central column that's a hollow spar, and that provides structure and buoyancy. I will post photos and videos of what these look like on flashforwardpod.com, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. The Aquapod is another uh, product of ours, and it is a massive geodesic sphere. So it's composed of, depending on the, the model, about 200 triangles that are bolted together to make a massive sphere. And on that sphere, there's about eight points where it can get moored into a grid system. So there's ropes that tie onto the pen and then attach to a system, a grid system of anchors and ropes to keep everything in place so nothing moves around or floats away. Okay, so they've got a flying saucer and a geodesic sphere. And each of them can be fully submerged in a storm without losing all of the fish inside. And they have these pens out in the world. Inside each of those pens are fish. And most of the time, they're fish that eat other fish. So unlike the mussels, you have to feed them. So the feed will in include a whole bunch of different ingredients, and that can change. Uh, and the big one and the most contentious one is fish meal. And so that often comes from reduction fisheries, uh, smaller fish such as sardines, menhaden, herring, etc., and those are, are reduced into fish meal and included in the feed. Fish meal is basically what it sounds like. It's just ground up fish into like a mealy, pasty stuff. And fish meal, as Tyler said, is the root of a lot of controversy in the field of aquaculture broadly. And that's because to make fish meal, you have to get those little fish from somewhere. The main fishery here, the anchoveta, is used almost entirely, 98% of it, for producing feed to feed animals, uh, fish meal, fish oil, and uh, export it elsewhere. This is Patricia Majlouf, the vice president for Peru at an organization called Oceana. And Patricia has spent years trying to change the way that the Peruvian anchovy is used. They're little fish. They're anywhere between uh, 12 and 20 centimeters uh, long, the adults. So roughly five to eight inches long. Um, this is a very oily little fish. That's why it's so good for nutrition, because it has a lot of the really good oils, the omega-3s and 6s and very high, you know, mineral contents and vitamins. And it's supposed to be that if you eat uh, one pound of anchovies per week, you cover all your nutritional needs except for energy. For that, you have to eat french fries. <laughs> Most Peruvian anchovies are not eaten by humans, with or without french fries. They're ground up into fish meal and fed back to fish, or even sometimes to cows and pigs on land. And fish meal is cheap. 
you know, this is a very low value product. And so you have to catch millions and millions of tons of fish to, to have a profitable industry. To supply all that fish meal so they can make enough money to make the fishing worth it, Peruvian fishing companies have severely depleted the fishery. We used to take, you know, 80, 90 percent of the whole volume of fish in the water. And that's not just bad for the anchovies' future. It's also bad for the ecosystem. From bonitos, uh, mackerel, all the big fish used to feed on anchoveta, on anchovies, Peruvian anchovies, because this was the most abundant and, and available fish. Uh, also seals and penguins and, and what we call guano birds, which are boobies, pelicans, and cormorants. So Patricia decided that what she would do is shift the way these anchovies are used. So fishermen have to catch a lot of anchoveta to make the process worthwhile to them because fish meal is really cheap. But if they could sell fish to consumers directly and have people eating those fish, they could get a lot more money for them, which in turn means they can fish less. So one ton of fish meal, a thousand kilos, you get uh, $1,600. But if you sell it in a can or frozen for a can, you can get as much as nine euros for a can of fish. To get people to eat these fish, Patricia launched a whole campaign called Anchovera Week. We called on all our top chefs to work with us, and uh, all these restaurants participated for free. We got all the fish donated by the one single company in Lima that produced anchovies for human consumption in a quality that was good enough for the restaurants to produce, you know, their high-end products. They made ceviche, they made all sorts of amazing preparations. We called on all our top chefs and they all came up with incredible recipes because it's very easy to work with this fish. And uh, we got 18,000 people to taste it for the first time. They also got the fish onto the shelves in supermarkets so people could buy it. Companies started seeing, oh, wow, people eat these things, so let's start canning them. And within a couple of years, there were millions of dollars were invested in factories and production of many different products came up. And by 2010, 11, more than half the products in the supermarket shelves were, were anchovies rather than tuna, which is what had happened before. So this is great. It's a big success. People are eating anchoveta. It's in the supermarkets. Folks who are fishing know that they can get more money for this fish now. Great. Can you tell what's coming? Womp womp. Unfortunately, in 2012, the government started a fight with the big industry, restricting them access to the nearshore areas. So they stopped producing. In 2012, the industry pulled back on their movement towards eating anchoveta instead of grinding it up into a paste and shipping it off for animals to eat in faraway places. And, and for years, it's been, you know, dropping and dropping, and the availability has, has significantly decreased. And uh, most of the anchovies that are being produced now are being exported. And then, again, our supermarkets are full of tuna fish that is imported mostly from Ecuador. And this, again, is why it's hard to focus on consumer choices as something that will save us, right? Consumers were choosing to eat these anchovies. It was working. But one government decision, one feud between a regime and industry, and boom, all that progress is gone. Even if Peruvians wanted to eat anchovies, the incentives are no longer there for the fish producers. Plus, Patricia says that there are a ton of unregulated illegal fish meal plants all along the Peruvian coast. Uh, We just did a a study recently looking at that. We have, I don't know, 50, 60 
illegal plants along the some of the main fishing ports in the country, and they're producing uh, about they're using about 150,000 tons of fish to produce fish meal, and that is more than the volume that was used for human consumption at the peak of production in the in 2012-15. And to bring us back to mariculture, a lot of that fish meal is being fed to fish in pens. And this has been criticized for its sustainability. People aren't sure if it makes sense to catch fish and then feed them to other fish. This is especially contentious because often there's also an inequality issue here. We feed fish to fish in order to get bigger fish. And these bigger fish, are they are more expensive. So they are... They are sold essentially only in rich country, in rich countries, and the fish meal or the fish feed comes from other countries, mainly developing countries. You see the pattern there. In response, mariculture scientists have been trying to figure out ways to feed their fish without relying so heavily on this hotly contested fish meal. There's also been a lot of improvement in feed formulation. So we're now supplementing the fish meal that goes into the fish feed with different products. One of the big ones that's getting a lot of attention is soy, uh, and that's going on right now. Uh, fish meal in, in salmon feed is, I think, down 80% or more. I'm not sure exactly. But they're also looking at a lot of new novel ingredients that hold a lot of promise but are not commercially available yet. And this can include insect meal, different poultry byproducts, algae protein, I even heard a talk recently about using the yeast from brewing. So if you take the brewer's yeast after you've brewed a batch of uh, beer, you can take the protein from that and use it in different applications, including fish feed. Or you could just be more like Bernard and grow muscles that don't require these same kinds of inputs. You know, the, the whole thing that I'm trying to do is not just growing things. It's the whole... It's the whole problem of, uh, of being sustainable. So how do we do it in a way that doesn't extract all the, you know, that isn't all about money. And so it's all about thinking about, you know, how do we do business on this planet that is, has less impact? According to the UN, aquaculture production grew an average of 5.8% every year between 2001 and 2016. Today, 46.8% of the global production of watery foodstuffs comes from aquaculture. And experts think that this trend will only continue, probably surpassing the wild-caught animals in just a couple of years. The future of the ocean is farming. But what does that mean for the ways that we think about the ocean? When we come back, I'm going to talk through some ideas about wilderness, agriculture, and who owns the ocean. But first, another word from one of our sponsors. Okay, so fisheries and fishing and mariculture, it's a lot like agriculture on land, but it's also really different. On land, farmers generally own the fields and forests they harvest from. But in the ocean, these farmers don't generally own the water. The ocean is considered a public space, a public good, a commons. We, the public, is the owner of the resource, and we should let the fishers extract some fish under condition, under, under certain condition. And the condition is that they don't trash the place. And the ocean isn't like land in some other key ways, too. Water as a medium carries nutrients and carries uh, disease and parasites much further and much more efficiently. 
And so it's not quite the same. We can't apply the same rules. And while I was reporting this episode, one of the things I kept coming back to is how changing our idea of what the ocean is for might change how we treat the ocean. The idea of wilderness is pretty fraught. Lots of places on land are called wilderness by colonizers when, in fact, people have lived there for a really, really long time. But the ocean is truly vast, and there are parts of it that are maybe not untouched, but certainly uninhabited by humans. But does the ocean even count as wilderness? It turns out that this is actually kind of a contentious question, in part because what makes something wilderness isn't really well-defined. In one study, researchers asked people involved in conservation what elements they might consider when trying to decide if an ocean area is wilderness. People said things like the amount of boat traffic, the amount of noise, the number of man-made structures, the number of people in the area. But they also said things that are harder to quantify, like the naturalness of the area and the wildness of the area. And I don't really know what those things mean. This is kind of an esoteric discussion, but it matters in part because what we decide counts as wilderness has an impact on what we protect. Amanda Nixon from the Pew Charitable Trusts says that we should be protecting 30% of the ocean at a minimum. We absolutely believe that it's important to increase the level of ocean protection to 30% for a whole range of reasons. Um, One is like when you consider, again, that 70% of the Earth's surface and the role that the ocean plays in provision of habitat, in providing oxygen, et cetera, et cetera, and for the myriad amazing and productive and beautiful ecosystems, be they for tourism reasons or fish production reasons, you'd want to make sure that you have a pretty good level of protection to make sure that those Uh, that the important areas of the ocean are well looked after. If the ocean is considered pristine wilderness, even if that isn't really a well-defined or technically meaningful thing, it's a useful label to point to when you're arguing that we should protect it. The ocean is not pristine and untouched, but large swaths of the ocean have remained outside of our agricultural grasp. Even when we send out fishing boats, that's more akin to sending out hunting parties and trapping animals in the woods. Now that we can set up farms in the ocean, it's more like putting up fences and calling little bits of land ours. There is a historical analogy here that might be helpful. Up until the 16th century in England, land was generally communal. People shared the space for planting and grazing and harvesting. But as sheep farming grew more and more profitable, people started wanting their own land to graze their sheep on, land that they did not have to share. And slowly but surely, people started closing off land and claiming it. This is called enclosure, and it really ramps up in the 16th century in England until slowly but surely, all of the land is partitioned off into little individual farms. The history of enclosure is too long and complicated to get into, but I will link to some really interesting readings about it in the blog post for this episode. You can also see examples of this kind of land claiming in the American West, right? Cowboys and farmers claiming land that was once open range. And that intersects with histories of colonialism and genocide in the United States. If the ocean winds up going through the same kind of process where individual farms decide they want to own their little slice of water, what does that look like? As long as these farms are within 200 miles of a coastline, they fall under the jurisdiction of the country whose coast that is. And some countries might decide that they'd be willing to partition out some of that space to private companies, whether formally or informally. In fact, some libertarian scholars have argued for this very thing in the past. And I've been thinking a lot about what that would mean for how we treat the ocean. 
if we go from seeing the ocean as a vast, relatively uninhabitable wilderness to a place that we can own and turn into agricultural space, what does that do to how we see the planet, how we see that 70% of Earth? I don't know. I don't have answers here. I've just been thinking a lot about it. This whole little miniseries has been about the ways the Earth could change, how we're driving some of those changes, and how we might respond to them. I'm really interested in how humans think about our planet. Do we see it as a puzzle that needs to be solved? Do we see it as an immutable force that is steady and unchanging? Do we see it as green or sandy or blue? Do we see it as a place where we're guests? Or do we see it as a place that we own? I'm using the word we here, but of course there is not a universal way of relating to the Earth. Different people will answer all of those hypothetical questions I'm raising differently. But I hope that now, by the end of this little series, perhaps you are looking at the Earth a little bit differently. We only have one of these strange rocks to call home. One planet with a perfect magnetic field at the perfect distance from the sun with enough food and water to sustain us. The Earth will live on without us, no matter what we do. The poles will flip, the deserts will breathe in and out, the fish will spawn and swim, probably better if we were gone, the clouds will part or come together and rain, and the sun will hit that rain and make rainbows, even if humans are not here to see those rainbows and post them on Instagram. But if we want our future, collectively, on this planet to be a pleasant one, a just one, a good one, we should probably get our butts in gear and do something to make sure that that future happens. That's all for this episode and for this mini-series. Flash Forward will be back in May with all new futures all around the theme of bodies. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hustlonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. Special thanks this episode to the Women's Audio Mission, Miriam Caduce, Stephanie Lopez, the Potluck Podcast Studio, the Potluck Podcast Collective, and Quincy Surasmith. The narrator for the Snow Globe is played by Brent Rose. Lenny Haywood is played by Evan Johnson. Farah Mustarian is played by Zora Norbaksh, who hosts a podcast called Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. Definitely go check that out. John Jacob Siwa is played by Joseph Jones. Juana Aguilar is played by Tamara Krinsky, the host of Tomorrow's World Today, now streaming on Netflix. Christina Amity is played by Anjali R. Fitch. If you want to suggest a future I should do, send me a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I truly love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. If financial giving is not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review. Or just tell your friends about the show. I swear, I say it every time, but it really does help. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one. <laughs>